Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.01 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 15th of September, 2020. This is episode 286. Wow, of Bitcoin, and we got international mafia guys running around. Fatif, yep, Fatif. Oh, God, we'll get to that one. But first of all, in the, let's just get rid of all the bad news. Uh, Paxful has shut down in Venezuela. Uh, so that was one of the places where you could actually purchase Bitcoin as a Venezuelan, but now because they're a little scared... Uh, they announced yesterday, I believe, to is in a tweet from Paxful Lat Am. That's at Paxful underscore L A T A M. Uh, I won't read the Spanish. I had to translate because you know, even though I took many years of Spanish, I still can't freaking read it. It's because I don't. It's, that's what happens when you don't use a foreign language. You it you have to actually use it for it to stay with you. So, um. The translation is as follows. To our Paxful family in Venezuela, today we are saddened to announce that Paxful will cease operations in Venezuela. We hope there will be another opportunity to enter the region again in the near future. This is not the end. Thank you always, Paxful Latam's team. Eh, okay, so what the hell happened? Let's find out from decrypt.co. Uh, let's see, where is it? There we go. Jose Antonio Lanz is writing this one for Decrypt sometime yesterday. Bitcoin exchange Paxful exits Venezuela, citing United States sanctions. Of course, because apparently we can tell everybody what to do. This morning, Venezuelan users of Paxful, a North American Bitcoin exchange, received an email in which the platform thanked them for their use and said goodbye. Quote, due to concerns regarding the regulatory landscape around Venezuela and Paxful's own risk tolerance, we regret to report that Paxful will be ceasing operations in Venezuela, said the platform in a statement shared with Decrypt. Quote, we made our best efforts for several months, but with current risks, we had no choice but to make this incredibly difficult decision. End quote. If the situation changes, Paxful indicated it could start offering services again in the country. The platform had acted in the past to restrict the activities of Venezuelan. This summer, it banned the use of accounts from Banco de Venezuela, the largest bank in the country. Later, it forbid the use of Petros or any other transaction between exchanges that support the state-sanctioned cryptocurrency. In a Twitter post, Paxwell's team clarified that the onerous regulations it's referring to aren't from Venezuela but are instead related to the Office of Foreign Asset Control, or the OFAC, part of the United States Department of Treasury. 
OFAC, sanctions against Venezuela prevent Americans from doing business with the Venezuelan government or government-owned businesses, as well as a litany of other things. They also add paperwork for financial institutions in the country. The regulatory cost may not have been worth it to Paxful, which doesn't do that much business in the country, according to data from Useful Tulips. While local bitcoins moved more than $4.5 million last week in Venezuela, the North American exchange reported business of less than $25,000. That'd do it, man. Other exchanges, however, have a different appetite and budget for risk. Several new options have started offering their services in Venezuela, from centralized exchanges like Binance to decentralized trading platforms like HODL HODL. I love saying that, HODL HODL. Oh, so there there it is. <clears throat> Yet another one bites the dust due to OFAC. Honestly, you know, this it's it it's not gonna end, but this shit ain't right. I mean, you know, this is what's gotten the United States into so much trouble in the first damn place, is having the extensive reach that we have. And on you know, and I still don't I still don't get how the human species at in general has just let this occur. I mean, it's like we will it's like we will put up with anything, and it ain't just the United States, clearly. It's the rest of the world. Everybody in the world after World War II just decided to just go, you know what? I I give up. I'm too tired of fighting. So we'll just let the United States do everything. Now don't get me wrong. I love the United States, but this isn't about the United States. This is about the United States federal government. That's different. Okay, the American people are fine for the most part, although there are some that are really some troublemakers right now. We won't get into that. This, the, the, the states of the United States are America. The people are America. The property is America. But the extension of force from the United States federal government is not America. That's my opinion. You may disagree, I separate the two things as completely separate entities. I would like it if the federal government would shrink its ass and stop telling other countries what the hell that they can and cannot do. That would be nice. I don't have any hopes of that happening anytime soon. So we'll just have to deal with the bullshit as it comes. And speaking of bullshit, Brock Pierce, well, this is actually not bullshit. He's bullshit. But this is actually rather funny. Brock Pierce served with lawsuit at his own campaign event. I mean, you told everybody where you were going to be. What did you expect when you're running a scam coin? The 2020 candidate and former EOS frontman just wanted to shake the man's hand. Now he's been served court papers for a class action lawsuit involving Block One, of course, because you're part of a scam, even if you say that you left. Nobody. That's just dumb. He's not gone. He says he's gone, but you know he's not. Jeff Benson, writing for Decrypt.co sometime on the 14th, says, Donald Trump and Joe Biden aren't the only two candidates running for president this year. Further down on some state ballots, past the likes of libertarian Joe Jorgensen and musician Kanye West, is Tether co-founder and Mighty Duck Brock Pierce. Yeah, he's a child actor, by the way. He was... Apparently, he's very famous for being a kid in this one film. I, 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 don't, I don't know how it works, but whatever. He's running for president and has left Pierce open not only to critiques of his campaign platform, but also 
two attacks on his role in the creation of blockchain platform EOS. While shaking hands at a campaign rally marking the opening of his New York City headquarters, <laughs> Pierce was served a court summons by a masked bystander, James Catullus, CEO of Typhon Capital Management and part of the lead counsel for a lawsuit against Pierce or Pierce, confirmed via email to decrypt that the service was related to a securities fraud class action. That's nothing to sneeze at, y'all. According to Catullus, Brock has refused to accept service from us through counsel, so we had a process server serve him at a rally for his presidential campaign. That officially notifies him of a class action filed in federal court this May on behalf of anyone who bought or received EOS tokens before or between June 2017 and the current date. That's a lot. The class action alleges breach of fiduciary duty and unjust enrichment by defendants who comprise both current and former company executives. Ooh. In addition to Purse, it named Block One co-founders Brendan Bloomer and Daniel Larimer, as well as a colleague, Ian Grigg. The team alleges that Block.1, the brains behind EOS blockchain, did not register the EOS token sale, which raised roughly $4 billion in Ether with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Moreover, the complaint alleges that the defendants kept investors in the dark about its operations and even about being investigated by the SEC which ultimately settled a complaint with Block 1 for $24 million. Yeah, that slap on the wrist. Catullus told Decrypt that his group, which is led by Grant and Eisenhofer, and also includes the Northwestern Law School Investor Protection Center and litigator Jenny Vetrenko, was appointed lead counsel on behalf of the Crypto Assets Opportunity Fund, which will be the lead plaintiff in the class action. So what's the next step? Quote, we will be filing an amended complaint soon, he said before making a prediction. Then, Block 1 will try to file a motion to dismiss. If the case survives that motion, then the class certification process begins in earnest to establish who exactly lost money due to Block 1's misconduct and exactly how much. Either way, the process will probably last longer than Pierce's presidential campaign. <laughs> I still don't understand why people do this. I mean... Well, why why they defraud their customers? Yeah, well, that's easy. That's just to get money. But run for president when you when you have no chance of winning, I don't get it. I it just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like it's like a waste of money. Eh, certainly a waste of time. I mean, unless you're in, it's like Carlin. You know, George Carlin said, "It's one big club, buddy, and you ain't in it." My strategy is though. They told uh, the SEC that it may buy more Bitcoin. Andrew Yang, writing for the BTC Times sometime on yesterday, says, On September the 11th, MicroStrategy notified the SEC that it had adopted a new Treasury Reserve policy. In item 8.01 of the filing, the company noted that its Bitcoin holdings, quote, may increase beyond the $250 million investment that the company disclosed on August the 11th, 2020. The notification comes after the firm acquired 21,454 Bitcoin on August the 11th, adopting the cryptocurrency as its primary reserve asset. MicroStrategy's initial investment was well received across the Bitcoin space, of course, as the firm's CEO famously detailed that MicroStrategy had recognized Bitcoin as a legitimate investment asset that can be superior to cash. As the BTC Times previously reported, MicroStrategy's sizable purchase effectively made the company's shares a proxy investment in Bitcoin, indirectly exposing hundreds of thousands of investors to the asset 
as approximately 28% of its shares are owned by the leading investment firm BlackRock and Vanguard. In light of the new policy updates, it appears that MicroStrategy is ready to double down on its commitment to Bitcoin. Okay, that's good news. However, as usual, there's always a dark side to everything. Now, I don't know if this would happen, but it's it's a question that that I started formulating after I heard that they were going to increase their that they may increase their position for Bitcoin holdings because it is true that you can actually use uh MicroStrategy shares sort of like an ETF. You certainly gain exposure to Bitcoin directly. Uh well, okay, indirectly through MicroStrategy's holdings. And since MicroStrategy shares are in a whole bunch of people's portfolios, whether retirement or not, it begs the question, is it possible that MicroStrategy could get sued if Bitcoin price takes a tumble? Because it already did since, I mean, they bought on August the 11th, so they're actually down like 8% right now on that particular investment. I don't think so because lots of companies invest in lots of different things and surely there's never been a there's always been a time where that thing probably went down in value therefore decreasing the amount of value of their various shareholders. You see what I'm saying? So that it, it still ends up being a question though because is it possible? It, I mean is it as the world and especially the United States becomes more and more litigious is it possible that you can say you've breached your fiduciary commitment to me, your shareholder, by making this investment X, and that investment has gone down in value, thereby causing me material loss? I hope not. I really don't, because I'm tired of people just being babies all the time, and it's sad to see. But again, it's just a question that I have. Is it possible? Uh, but on the on the bright side of this whole thing... <laughs> They're doubling down, and I find that amazing. Somebody else who's just maybe entering the market, though, got Jim Cramer. I don't know if you heard the uh, Anthony Pompliano podcast. It's worth it, though. There's some interest. Uh, Jim Cramer's actually kind of an interesting guy. I had no idea of some of his past, uh, some of the things that he's done in his past. He's actually pretty, he's an interesting guy. Uh, but he also doesn't understand Bitcoin. That's very clear, but he's trying and he really lit the shields down to lit, you know, to when he was talking to Anthony by saying, I don't know dick about this shit. Please educate the living crap out of me. Here we go. Mad Money host Jim Cramer forecasts a generational wealth storage shift. Benjamin Pyrus writing for Cointelegraph sometime very late last night. Jim Cramer, host of the popular CNBC mainstream market show Mad Money, described changing mindsets across generations as they relate to wealth storage. Quote, I think that my kids, when they get my inheritance, won't feel comfortable with gold and I feel comfortable with and will feel comfortable with crypto. Cramer told Morgan Creek digital co-founder Anthony Pompliano on a podcast episode. Quote, I have to start recognizing that maybe I am using a typewriter, he said, of this possibly outdated gold storage practice. Kramer's comment came in the middle of a lengthy interview, which saw the mainstream markets expert asking Pompliano a number of questions about crypto. A notable point around the conversation, the current economic situation in the United States, given its debt and other precarious circumstances, and what assets might hold as safe wealth storage options. Quote, 
When I go to my inflation handbook, what it says is buy gold, buy masterpieces, and buy mansions. <laughs> mansions. Hope they're built well. Seriously, I've seen a lot of mansions that look like shit after 10 years. Kramer said, referring to hedges for folks of his generation, he also subsequently included reference to him and his wife's choice of real estate as a hedge. Quote, what we didn't have in that menu was crypto, Kramer said. Kramer put crypto and gold in the same category, saying, you have to have one or the other. We're on a collision course, which makes me feel great about the gold that I do own, but I do feel that it's perfectly logical to add crypto to that menu, Kramer said, in light of current economic uncertainties. Several days ago, Pompliano previewed the conversation with Kramer, saying he convinced the CNBC host to pick up some Bitcoin. During, during the show, Kramer appeared okay with allocating 1% of his wealth storage to crypto. And that's the end of the article. But go and listen to that episode with Anthony Pompliano. I think it's the Pomp Podcast. But just, just Google Anthony Pompliano. I guarantee you'll find his podcast and the one with Kramer. It's worth it. It really is. I learned a lot about Jim Cramer and sort of the way that the way that he thinks. And what like again, I'll reiterate that the the man was pretty damn humble insofar as being able to admit that he did not know a damn thing about this thing. He didn't know anything about Bitcoin. And to Pompliano's credit, he said, Don't don't when you say crypto, don't get into anything but Bitcoin. He actually said that. So Say what you want about Pompliano. He's actually steering people in the right in the right direction. But it looks like Jim Cramer may be coming on board. And in fact, I saw a tweet from him yesterday evening that said, still thinking about Bitcoin. So there we go. We might have another one in our ranks. Top banks lose $635 billion in market cap during 2020. Oh, oh, that's got to hurt. Shara Malwa writing it for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. Let's see what happened. Bank stocks lost over $635 billion amid increasing fears of inflation among investors and the effect of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic on the global economy, according to a report by financial education site BuyShares. For comparison, the entire cryptocurrency market is worth only $354 billion. <laughs> the report tracked equity valuations from December 2019 when the coronavirus had just broken out in China to August 2020. It noted U.S. banks suffered the biggest drops while Japanese institutions such as the Japan Post Bank recorded relatively low plunges. The worst affected was U.S. Bank Wells Fargo, which saw a slump of 56.26% in that period. It was followed by Spain's Banco Santander at 46.16 and J.P. Morgan Chase at 30.16%. These are all numbers to the downside. However, J.P. Morgan Chase lost the biggest in terms of dollar valuation, losing over $131 billion in that period, while Wells Fargo lost a measly $128 billion. Chinese banks came next on the list. The country's industrial and commercial bank were hit by a 27% loss of over $73 billion, while the Bank of China was down by a similar percentage, but at a loss of only $30 billion. Only $30 billion? Oh, y'all got out easy. Overall, the top four Chinese banks lost a total of $179 billion, as per the figures cited in the report. Japan and France had slightly better fortunes. Japan-based Mizo Financial Group, a large financial player in the country, 
had the least percentage change among all top global banks at 11.33% to the downside, which is a $4 billion loss, while French player Credit Agricole fell 30%, a loss of $12 billion. Quick intervention by central banks in March cushioned most banks from a further slump, the report said. These range from the infamous quantitative easing technique, in which central banks purchase securities to increase the money supply to printing more fiat. <clears throat> Meanwhile, a rise in digital banking could be expected as banks seek newer forms of revenue and business models. Banks are already experimenting with state-backed digital currencies in this regard, with some even predicting the rise of cryptocurrencies as a strong contender for fee two fiat currencies by 2030. Oh, mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be a lot quicker than that. I guarantee it. Good God. The Global Adoption Index 2020 lists South Africa in the top 10 countries. Nice, nice. September the 15th out of globalcrypto.tv. We've got, is there an author here? Andrew Drake. Uh, let's see here. Doop, 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 doop. The Global Crypto Adoption Index 2020, as released by Chainalysis, lists South Africa in the top 10 countries. For cryptocurrency adoption, chain analysis data revealed some unexpected results placing Ukraine at the top of the list, followed by Russia and Venezuela. The index also placed South Africa at number seven, just behind the United States of America. The index focuses on four metrics. On-chain cryptocurrency value received, weighted by purchasing power parity per capita. Two, the value of on-chain retail transfers weighted by PPP which is the purchasing power parity. Three, the number of on-chain crypto deposits weighted by the number of internet users. And D, the peer-to-peer -peer exchange trade volume weighted by PPP per capita and number of internet users. And yes, I said D on purpose. <laughs> Keeping you on your toes. China, however, ranked at number four, despite them dominating the on-chain value received and on-chain retail value received. This was largely due to the number of on-chain deposits and P2P trade due to its large population. Chainalysis reported that of the 154 countries that were analyzed, only 12 countries had so little cryptocurrency activity that they were given an index score of zero. Chainalysis highlighted that this proves the excitement around cryptocurrency as an investment as well as a store of value. Some of the countries that were given an index score of zero included Algeria, Cape Verde, Fiji, Laos, and Zimbabwe, which is rather, rather odd. <clears throat> the data showed that the top four countries for P2P cryptocurrency activity weighted by number of internet users and PPP per capita all appear in the top 10 and are all four developing countries. Chain analysis noted that this data illustrates how important P2P platforms are to cryptocurrency adoption in developing countries. Chain analysis described Venezuela as an excellent example of what fuels cryptocurrency adoption in developing countries. Quote, our data shows that Venezuelans use cryptocurrency more when the country's native fiat currency is losing value to inflation suggesting that Venezuelans turn to cryptocurrency to preserve savings they may otherwise lose. Man, that's almost a duh moment. My God, Chain Analysis noted that they acknowledged that there may be limitations to the methodology that they used, including the use of VPNs and other devices that could hide the geographical origin of web activity. The firm does, however, believe that the data that forms the trends they explore comprises millions of transactions 
uh, of the activity that would therefore <clears throat> therefore need to be extremely widespread in order for it to meaningfully meaningfully affect the data provided in the index. So I'm surprised that the United States is number seven, uh, or uh, well, actually uh, number six. Is the index plays South Africa at number seven, which is just behind the United States. So that means that we're number six in adoption. And I've said it on several occasions that I'm not looking to the West for, for general adoption on this stuff. I'm, I'm looking for developing countries. Specifically, I'm looking for the countries on the continent of Africa, Central America, and South America. Uh, along, well, clearly along with Southeast Asian countries and stuff like that. But my, my, where I really focus on, on watching is countries like Venezuela. South Africa is, is way, way more developed than anything else. But, you know, as far as the rest of Africa is concerned, you know, you're not talking about like 100% first world countries there. And those are the ones that, those are the types of countries that I really look at. I'm looking at Argentina. I'm looking at Chile. Although Chile is a little bit more on the rural side. So, Probably, you know, not much there, but Argentina, Brazil, clearly Venezuela, I suspect Colombia will start falling in line. God only knows about Mexico, but uh, still, I mean, you got Costa Rica, which is relatively well off, but Panama, you know, I mean, kind of well off, but in either event, I just am not looking at the West. And therefore, I'm kind of surprised that the United States of America is number six in cryptocurrency adoption that's rather odd hey you know what let's run the numbers cnbc.com forward slash futures and commodities because well because i'm up at the crack of ass here at 6 28 a.m but it looks like index futures are all to the upside. Thank God we're saved. Oh, we're so saved. Everything's going to be all right, fam. We're all good. Dow futures are up over half a point. Uh, S&P futures are about three quarters of a point to the upside. NASDAQ is damn near a full point to the upside. S&P mid mini is up half a point. So saved. Uh, interest rates are all to the downside. You, I mean, U.S. 30, 10, 5, and 2-year futures are all down, but the 30-year future is down damn near a quarter of a percent So for the futures. Uh, energy, we've got a, a bit of a small rally here. Oil, uh, West Texas Intermediate is up one and a half points, so it's going to be, you're going to be able to purchase a barrel of West Texas Intermediate for 37.85. Brenton North Sea, you're going to be able to pick up for a measly 40 bucks because it's up uh, 1.36 to the upside. Natural gas, relatively flat. It's up over half a point, so it'll cost you $2.32 for a 1,000 cubic feet of that stuff. Let's talk about money. Bitcoin, a little rally going on right now. Uh, 10,856. We have a high over at BitAsset at 10,866. We got a low over at hit BTC at 10,850. So pretty damn tight trading range there. God, is that $16? Wow. <laughs> That's pretty damn tight. Very close to 350,000 transactions have occurred in the last 24 hours. That's about 
14,500 transactions on average per hour. 2.6 million BTC have been sent in the last 24 hours. Okay, so I for this is on several occasions in the past, in the very, very recent past, like a couple of hand, like maybe a couple of handfuls of days. I was used to saying that, you know, 860,000 BTC have been sent. Uh, I'd get excited when like a million and a half were sent. But this is like all of a sudden for the last few days, uh, a couple, again, a couple of handfuls of days at least, I'm seeing like skyrocketing amounts of BTC being sent around the horn in 24 hours and today is no exception at two and a half million BTC being sent. That's 109 B 109, 109,000 BTC being sent on average per hour with 7.5 BTC being the average transaction value and 0.04 BTC being the median transaction value. That's about $500. Block times are very low, eight minutes and 50 seconds. We have just about a half BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 79 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We have a hash rate dip percentage, 1.24% to the downside, but we're still at 143 and a half exahashes per second. That's pretty high. Ethereum is at 378, Bcash at 239, Litecoin at 50, BSV at 167, Ethereum Classic at 5.5, Dogecoin 0.0029, and as usual, at 42,000 transactions, the Doge Network uh, outcompetes Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, as well as Bcash. Oh, Bcash has seen a relative bump in the amount of people using it, I suppose, and I, at almost almost 20,000 transactions on your favorite shit chain, Clark Moody Bitcoin. So this is bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard. Clark is looking at a price at 10,834 for the orange coin. And we have a money supply of 18, 18,489,971.08 BTC at this time. 10,958 transactions are waiting to clear, and that's going to take somewhere around 16 blocks to get rid of. Lightning Network total capacity holding strong at 1,073.77 BTC. That's about 11.6 million in liquidity spread across 7,486 nodes, representing 36,894 channels. Uh, percentage of Tor capacity has risen again. 50.5% of all of the Lightning Network is now running over Tor. That's 541.91 BTC as capacity in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that's spread across 2,397 Tor nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. Thank you if you stayed with me this long because we're going to get into a story about the International Mafia's Enforcement Arm, otherwise known as FATF. FATF hints at Binance as an example of an exchange avoiding regulation. Oh, that's bad. You need protection. We're going to offer you protection for 
Fucking mafia, I swear to God. Andriy Shevchenko is writing this for Cointelegraph.com sometime yesterday. A new report by the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, details a series of red flags that can help identify illicit activity involving cryptocurrencies. Among them are a general set of guidelines involving exchanges and jurisdictions with weaker regulations, where Binance is seemingly singled out for often moving to avoid stronger regulatory oversight. We call it regulatory arbitrage, people. The report, published on September the 14th, lists a variety of red flags for spotting money laundering or terrorism financing, excuse me, grouped by categories. Most red flags cited are commonly seen in traditional finance as well. Younger, old people suddenly transacting for huge sums of value or transfers split into many chunks just below the reporting threshold, for example. In the section relating to geographical risk, however, the report clearly states that users transacting with exchanges located in jurisdictions with low anti-money laundering regulations are a red flag. In a separate note, the report details how a particular exchange moved several times to avoid harsher policies. Quote, Ahead of the implementation of a policy to prohibit VASP operation in jurisdiction A in Asia in 2017, a VASAP or VASP exchange established in jurisdiction A transferred its operation to jurisdiction B in the same region. In 2018, jurisdiction B stepped up its AML CFT legal regime on VAs following significant hacks of some major VASP's exchanges, or rather, their in parentheses exchanges. In March of 2018, the VASP announced its, ju- its intentions to relocate headquarters to Jurisdiction C in Europe, a jurisdiction which had not yet introduced a comprehensive AML-CFT regime in relation to VAs and VASPs at the time. Later in November of 2018, Jurisdiction C introduced certain regulations on VASPs, and in February of 2020, it confirmed that no authorization was given to the corresponding VASP to operate. More recent reports in 2020 indicated that the VASP had already relocated its registration and domicile status to jurisdiction D in Africa. (laughs) End quote. The exchange in question is very likely to be Binance, which started in China and moved to Japan and eventually Malta. Following February 2020 reports from Maltese authorities, that the exchange was never licensed in the country, Binance became evasive as to its current jurisdiction. Some placed its current registration in the Cayman Islands, though the FATF seems to believe that its true location is in Africa, possibly in the Seychelles. <laughs> Chilling out with a BitMEX guy. Binance did not immediately reply to Cointelegraph's request for comment. The wording of the report suggests that FATF would consider any transaction with Binance and other exchanges incorporated in countries with inadequate AML-CTF regulations as a potential red flag. Strict adherence to these rules could mean that fully regulated exchanges would be forced to ban direct transfers to any of these exchanges. Other rules involving mixing and tumbling of funds would also disqualify indirect withdrawals that go through user wallets. Still, worldwide jurisdictions and exchanges have been slow to adopt FATF guidelines and individual interpretations could create loopholes for some types of exchanges. Technical challenges to their implementation also abound, as blockchain pseudonymous nature can make it hard to attach the user's metadata that the FATF travel rule requires, despite a deadline For this past June, some experts believe that full implementation is still years away. Fuck FATF. 
Seriously, it's we're talking about an international unelected group of goons. It's a goon squad for the central banks of the world. That's all FATF is. And somehow or another, without the ability, I don't know, maybe they do have the ability to order an airstrike. But it seems to me that these guys are, un, are, are unweaponized insofar as they can't order tanks to go into a country and just mow everything down because they disagreed with FATF. But that's what the countries act like what's going on, that they're really scared of these guys. But they're unelected. If they're unelected, tell them to fuck off. I mean, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, honestly, at what point, at what point do you start wiggling out under the thumb? One, I mean, there's always going to be a point at which the pressures become too great for any living organism to be able to withstand. And with somebody like FATF going around and telling countries what they can and can't do, even though they are not from those countries, that's pressure and it's going to increase. And I just, I, I keep hoping that the human condition will just stand up and just, and say no and see, you know, at one point or another, we may have, we may have to F around and see what happens. I, good Lord, good Lord. Okay, here we go. Jihan Wu regains upper hand in Bitmain co-founder fight. The wrestling match continues. This was written today by Wolfie Zhao for Coindesk.com. In a new twist, as if we needed one, in Bitmain's ongoing power struggle, co-founder Jihan Wu has regained the legal representative status of the Bitcoin miner maker giant. How can you trust a company to... Why would you pay any company any amount of money to receive any amount of product when they're going through shit like this. That seems like a very, very bad idea. I mean, yes, I know that they're one of the one of not the only anymore, but one of the only games in town as far as miners are concerned. But would you really trust your money with, I mean, with anybody when you, when you depend on the product to come through, Let's say that you are a Nike shoe dealer. I don't, I don't think those exist, but let's say you make your money solely on Nike shoes and this kind of shit happens to Nike. Would you not be looking possibly at getting another brand of shoe? Because while this struggle, power struggles go on at the upper echelons of, of the C-level offices, how the hell can they get any actual work done? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some answers here from Wolfie. China's business registration record update on September the 14th shows Wu has again become the legal representative and executive director of Beijing Bitmain Technology, the operating entity of Bitmain. Subsequently, McCree Zan, the rival co-founder who was ousted last October by Wu but regained control earlier this year, is no longer the legal representative and executive director but remains a general manager of the firm. Oh man, this is just a mess. The role of a company's legal rep in China has broad powers to act on the firm's behalf and usually also holds the company's official seal, a crucial element for signing company decisions into effect. In an announcement published September the 15th via the WeChat account of Bitmain's Antminer brand, Wu reaffirmed the status update and said the company's respect for Zon remains unchanged. You never had respect for him, dude. The update suggests Bitmain's internal power fight may have come to a short-term end, although the two sides' lawsuits in the Cayman Islands 
Where Bitmain's parent holding entity resides is pending for a final judgment. Maybe FATF will allow it. Who knows? Wu added in the announcement that Bitmain's management now aims to work out sustainable solutions to solve all kinds of problems caused for employees, investors, and customers due to the co-founder's war of words. Quote, since 2020, the management's feud has damaged Bitmain's market share and its brand image. We have lost customers and employees were forced to take sides, Bitmain said in the post. Various breaking events and negative news even thwarted our plan to go public. Our equity option promised to employees almost became a useless piece of paper. <laughs> so surprisingly transparent there. In an October coup last year, Wu removed Zahn's role as Bitmain's chairman executive director and legal rep, even though Zahn is the biggest shareholder of Bitmain. Wu alleged that Zahn's leadership during 2019 caused serious issues, including a significant drop in Bitmain's Bitcoin miner market share. Zahn filed a lawsuit in the Cayman Islands in December over the legitimacy of Wu's move. The event has quickly escalated to a year-long power struggle. Earlier this year, Zahn regained his status as a legal rep, after winning the local government's favor and forcing his way into Bitmain's Beijing office. Soon after that, Bitmain's manufacturing business for Bitcoin mining equipment was essentially hard forked into two, with each side trying to establish their own sales arm and factory supply chains. As a result, Bitmain's employees were forced to take sides, and the standoff caused significant shipment delays for Bitmain's customers, many of whom had to turn to rival miner makers such as Shenzhen-based MicroBT. Okay. Really? You're going to build two different sales forces for the same company because your two main guys are in a dick measuring contest. I, I haven't really run, you know, I've never run a company that, that makes millions of dollars a year. But I have a sneaky suspicion that this is not the way to do it. I mean, call me crazy. But yeah, this just, you know, seems like a bad idea. Eastern Europe's sixth largest crypto service is a dark net market. Oh, really? In Eastern Europe? Say it ain't so, bro. A new report from Chainalysis has found that Eastern Europe is responsible for more dark net activity and ransomware volume than any other region. Samuel Haig, writing for Cointelegraph sometime very early this morning, Blockchain forensics firm Chainalysis has found that darknet markets exert a disproportionate presence in Eastern Europe's crypto sector. In an excerpt from Chainalysis' 2020 Geography of Cryptocurrency report, the firm asserts that Eastern Europe is responsible for more global dark debt market activity than any other region, with the anonymous free market Hydra comprising the region's sixth largest crypto service. The report estimates that Hydra generated more than $1.2 billion in crypto revenue between June 2019 and July 2020. The platform is among the world's largest darknet marketplaces despite solely servicing the Eastern Europe. <laughs> the Eastern Europe, I love that. Chainalysis estimates that 1.4% of Eastern Europe's $41 billion 12-month crypto volume is sent to illicit entries. Sorry, entities. In percentage terms, that's slightly behind Latin America, where 1.6% of total transfer volume is destined for illegal platforms. However, the total volume in Latin America is substantially smaller. Eastern Europe is also home to the highest earning ransomware network administrators and ransomware as a service operators. <laughs> ransomware as a service. Oh my. With the region receiving 23% of global transfers destined for ransomware addresses, 
Despite the region's high level of crypto-powered cybercrime, the report notes that Eastern Europe has seen significant adoption of crypto assets for legitimate purposes as well, with Ukraine and Russia ranking as the top two countries in the Chainalysis Global Crypto Adoption Index. Approximately 85% of Eastern European crypto transfers are described as professional-sized transactions worth more than $10,000, with Chainalysis noting the emerging presence of crypto fund managers in the region. Uh, well, it's Eastern Europe. What do you expect? I mean, you know, and there's nothing wrong with Eastern Europe. It's just that they got a history of this kind of stuff. And that's okay. If that's, I mean, I, I have no problem with dark markets because generally speaking, most of the shit dark markets sell that are quote dark goods should not be listed as dark at all. It should just be legalized. Corbit offers Bitcoin employee reference rewards by Tim Alper, writing for CryptoNews.com sometime again early this morning. A leading South Korean crypto trading platform has taken a somewhat novel approach to hiring new staff by offering Bitcoin rewards for staff members who recommend new hires and handing out BTC to staff members who work as interviewers during the recruitment process. Per media outlet EBN, the, to- the crypto talent pool is becoming increasingly narrow with a number of competitive exchanges competing for a relatively tiny number of senior or experienced developers. As such, the digital currency group backed Corbit, one of the largest exchanges in the country, has decided to test a means of tapping into its employees' social and professional networks using Bitcoin as an incentive. Corbit has offered a B- uh, sorry, a, I think it's, okay, hold on. I'm going to read it as is. It's not my fault. Corbett has offered a BTC, the number one, in finders fees for people who successfully recommend a candidate for a senior platform or iOS development role. So I'm assuming that means one BTC. The outlet quoted a Corbett spokesperson as confirming that recommenders can receive one Bitcoin through a new referral system, In quote. However, there appears to be a caveat. Corbit will only pay out the Bitcoin bounty after candidates complete their probationary training periods and are granted full-time employee status, a process that typically takes between two and three months. Staff members who agree to act as interviewers in HR hiring drives can also expect Satoshi payouts, with a bonus of over 25 USD worth of Bitcoin paid out to those who agree to grill candidates as part of the interview panels. The same media outlet claim that employee referral programs are also being implemented at rival exchange Flybit with finders fees of up to $8,000 USD up for grabs for senior executive roles. However, it appears that these hefty rewards are offered in fiat rather than crypto. So whether in fiat or in crypto, these guys are desperate to find anybody to fill these roles. So that's how fast the industry is growing. Personally, I think Corbit is going to do better by offering Bitcoin than Flybit, who's offering cheap toilet paper. Because honestly, I can go get that shit at the store. Whales can now use Bitcoin to purchase private jets. It's fun. Impractical, but fun. One aircraft comes at a cost of roughly 3,750 Bitcoin, which in my opinion is entirely too high of a price. Turner Wright is writing it for Cointelegraph sometime late yesterday. A private aircraft sales company has started allowing customers to purchase any of their multi-million dollar jets using Bitcoin. 
According to a September 13 report from news outlet Business Insider, U.S.-based Aviatrade Av- 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 yeah, is currently selling an upgraded 2014 Gulfstream G6500, sorry, G650ER for $40 million, roughly 3,750 Bitcoin as of this writing. Billionaires, including Amazon's Jeff Bezos and Tesla CEO Elon Musk reportedly own the same model, which is capable of traveling up to 7,500 nautical miles or roughly the distance between Los Angeles and Sydney, Australia. Quote, we accept Bitcoin as payment for all BizJet purchases, states Aviatrade's website. Aviatrade president Philip Rushton said that using fiat to purchase a private aircraft would be subject to cross-border restrictions in some countries. Cryptocurrencies, it seems, may offer less regulatory oversight for now. The company does not name specific prices for any of its aircraft, but crypto traders don't have to settle for the Gulfstream. Avia Trade currently lists 13 other private business jets for sale, including two Bombardier Global 7500s. As of June 2019, these were valued at $72.8 million, or more than 6,800 BTC. The aircraft sales company is not the first to accept crypto. In June, Kaizen Aerospace Chairman Fabrizio Poli announced in an interview with Bitcoin educator Andreas Antonopoulos that Kaizen would take payments in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for its charter and cargo services or to purchase a private jet. Antonopoulos compared the sales of multi-million dollar aircraft to the time he sold a Mini Cooper for crypto. Quote, they did a quick test drive, said the Bitcoin educator. By the time they came back, I signed the title and had perfect certainty that the money I received was real, unforgeable, and that it was fully mine and could not be taken back. So it made the kind of transaction very easy. I can see that easily translating into the purchase or sale of an aircraft. Honestly, Andreas, that would also go for a house, a boat, land, an island, I don't know, a piece of Antarctica a Snickers bar because we have the lightning network. It's just, that's what this was meant to do. Okay. Japanese crypto exchange accuses Binance of helping launder $9 million from 2018 hack. Again, on September the 15th, out of coindesk.com, we've got Wolfie Zhao writing this. A Japanese cryptocurrency exchange that suffered from a $60 million hack in 2018 is suing Binance for aiding and abetting the laundering of some of the stolen funds. According to a complaint filed by Fisco in the Northern California District Court on September the 14th, the Japanese exchange alleged that soon after it lost nearly 6,000 Bitcoin in the 2018 hack, the thieves sent 1,451 Bitcoin to an address belonging to Binance, which was worth $9.4 million at the time. Fisco called Zaif at the time of the hack, uh, that's Z-A-I-F, added that the thieves subsequently laundered the funds on the world's largest exchange platform due to its allegedly lax know-your-customer and anti-money laundering protocols that do not measure up to industry standards. The thieves are claimed to have taken advantage of Binance's policy that allowed new users to open accounts and transact on the platform in amounts of less than two Bitcoin without needing to provide any meaningful identifying information. Quote, the thieves broke the stolen Bitcoin into 7,000 separate transaction and accounts, all valued below the two Bitcoin threshold. In this way, the thieves converted the stolen Bitcoin into other cryptocurrencies and transmitted the value from the Binance platform. Fisco alleged that since Binance was notified and had actual knowledge that st- stolen funds were sent to its platform, 
It either intentionally or negligently failed to interrupt the money laundering process when it could have done so. As such, Fisco is demanding Binance to pay for its loss of the laundered funds in addition to other punitive damages Zafe was told by its then-parent entity, Tech Bureau, to Fisco shortly after the incident, which compensated users who had lost funds in the hack. $41 million worth of crypto assets from the hack belonged to Zafe customers, including those based within the United States and California, according to the court filing. Binance has yet not yet responded to Coindesk's request for comment. The case has the potential to draw further attention Two cryptocurrency exchanges, KYC and AML procedures, of course, as the, here we go, Financial Action Task Force is working towards bringing global regulators in line with its 2019 anti-money laundering guidance on virtual asset service providers, also known as the travel rule. Fisco argued that the case should be brought to trial in California court, not only because there were victims who were based in the region, but also critical components of Binance's business are also located in the U.S. state. For example. Fisco said Binance uses Amazon Web Services to host its servers and has the ability to select whichever AWS data center it chooses for its operations. The argument comes after repeated statements made by Binance that it has no traditional physical headquarters anywhere in the world. Quote, upon information and belief, a significant portion, if not all, of the AWS servers Binance relies on for its operations are located in the state of California. Upon information and belief... The AWS region and AWS availability zones housing Binance's digital data used to run its technical platform are located in California, Fisco said. In addition to Binance, having hired half a dozen employees in California, Fisco argued that a significant portion of Binance's cryptocurrency reserves are also stored in offline hardware facilities located in San Francisco Bay Area, which are controlled and managed by custodians headquartered in the region. Quote, For example, on July the 7th, 2020, Binance acquired cryptocurrency startup Swipe. Binance admits that Swipe uses Coinbase and BitGo, both of which are located in the San Francisco Bay Area, to custody the cryptocurrency used in Swipe's businesses, the plaintiff said. Fisco is seeking a jury trial over the allegations. Oh, so here, yeah, Uh, this is exactly why Fatif is writing the shit that they're writing about when it comes to uh, jurisdiction jumping. Uh, you know, and honestly, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I kind of don't care. I, I really don't. I don't use exchanges because I don't trade. And I certainly don't keep any Bitcoin on an exchange. That, by now, everybody should know not to do that. If you want to go play in the casino, then you're going to have to take your lumps. Don't play in the casino and you won't get any lumps. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Train Wrecked is brought to you by at Trending Macro. This is a reply to Raul Pal or Raul GMI on Twitter. Uh, this was actually way back in August of 31. Okay. So yeah, a couple of, couple of weeks ago, the amount of nodes is irrelevant to how secure the chain is. The only nodes that count are the miners. Everyone else is the equivalent of a fan keeping score at home with no ability to actually do anything. If they think the blocks are wrong.
Oh, there's just so much wrong with that. Nodes are how we route. Nodes are how we keep the rules, the rule set intact. Without the nodes, miners are going to have a much more difficult time being able to support the network. Yeah, the security would still be there. But without the node runners, well, you saw what the node runners did for uh, the whole SegWit2x thing. I mean, if it wasn't for the node runners, then the miners very well probably would have switched over to uh, bigger blocks, which would have centralized the network. You know, because there's always some degree of centralization, but it definitely would have added centralization to what is mostly a decentralized network. You want the reason I want small blocks. I don't know if you want them, but the reason I want them is well, light armored uh, infantry forces are very effective on the ground because they can pull up and they can move. They can get out there. They're relatively unnoticeable. They're easily camouflaged. They carry enough firepower to do a shit ton of damage. And because they're, they're able to move very, very quickly, they don't need to be armored as much, which makes them much lighter. It's like a light armored infantry, you know, force, right? The same thing is true here. The heavier the block, the easier they are to see and destroy or stop. The lighter they are, the easier it is to squeeze through cracks, go unnoticed, look like something else, and still be able to be very, very effective. Okay, that's why I, that's why I almost am very sympathetic with uh, Luke Dash Jr.'s 300 kilobyte block. I don't think it should be done. Why? Well, because we get, we're going to get into another fight, and I think that... Where we are right now is just fine, but I can be sympathetic to what Luke Dash Jr. is saying about going even smaller. The smaller the block, the easier it is to fit through cracks, to skirt around in the, in the World Wide Web infrastructure and not be seen. And, there, and if you can't see it or have very, a, a, a difficult time identifying it, then it's very difficult to stop. Big blocks, like some people are talking about like tera terabyte size blocks sometimes, which is just ridiculous on for other reasons other than being very noticeable. But even gigablock size shit is ridiculous. And I think that that's what uh, Bcash decided to do is go up to eight gigs. Of course, none of that capacity is actually being used because everybody knows it's a shit chain and you should probably not use it. <coughs> but in either event, you see, you get what I'm saying. That's why, that's why small blocks, very, very difficult to locate, very difficult to identify, very fast propagation times. That's what you want. Sorry, but that's what you want. I, let's do a joke. I've decided to quit my job as a personal trainer. I'm always drained and just not physically up to it. So I've just handed in my two-week notice. Quite possibly one of the worst ones that I've ever done on the show. <clears throat> it is, what is today? Uh, it is Tuesday. Oh my God, is it really Tuesday? Uh, yep, we're just at the head of the week. So, 
Uh, we've got the rest of the week to get through. I know everybody's getting tired of this COVID bullshit. It's complete nonsense. Yes, I'm sure it's deadly. Yes, I'm sure if you get it, it sucks. <clears throat> but honestly, what damage is being done to all of us that have been stuck inside the house and not really doing the normal shit that we've done for what, since March or like late February, something like that. Shit, I still got to go get my license renewed. I'm coming up on one year without a driver, without a functional driver's license. That's just sad. I just don't want to go hang out at the damn Texas Department of Public Safety for hours and with with that crew because it's like talk about getting sick. Anyway, listen, get through the rest of the week. Get to the uh, get to Friday, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and. And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.